Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Christopher Fettweiss, professor of political science at Tulane University and an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute. Chris, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. You've written quite a bit about political psychology and the problem of misperceptions in international politics and how these can generate conflict. This has been a major subfield in IR for, for decades. The late Robert Jervis um, was a pioneer in this respect. And you've mentioned him uh, many times in your work and speeches. And I wonder if you just have anything to say in general about this topic that you write a lot about. Well, I think it's the most important topic when it comes to and, and, an overlooked one when it comes to political science. Too often we act as if states do things on their own as if they're run by some kind of robot. When not remembering or at least keeping in mind and keeping in the foreground of our thoughts that people run states. And as long as people are going to be, as long as people run states, we're going to have the, the, the kind of pathologies and misperceptions and biases that, that uh, affect their behavior is going to affect state behavior. And Robert Jervis was one of the first to really put that in the foreground of his work. And uh, I often say he was one of the two big political scientists. I could never be like that. I, I look at and think they're much better than anything I could do. He, Robert Jervis and John Mueller, everything he wrote was worth reading. And much of what he wrote about was political psychology and pointing out that you know, people are running states. And Putin is running Russia, for instance. And his biases and pathologies are going to come to become Russian uh, pathologies and, and misperceptions. So uh, that's why I think political psychology, even though it's it's tough to quantify, it's tough to study for a lot of our sort of modern political scientists, it's extremely important. And it's extremely important for what's going on right now in international relations and in domestic politics too. In a recent article in Political Science Quarterly, you wrote, leaders do not react to other states, strictly speaking, but to the images they hold of those states. Those images, which tend to be constructed around certain ideal types, friend or foe, ally or rival, act as heuristic devices that help individuals organize and prioritize information. Images are often related to objective facts or truth, but they are not equivalent. Tease that out a bit more. Yeah, that's an old idea. And Robert Jervis is one of the first people to write about that, actually, that people hold images, especially leaders hold images of other countries. And in the, in the context of international politics, we hold an image of Russia. We and it's hard for Russia, for instance, to get to have that image change. Uh, people don't uh, necessarily we all have preconceived images of other people other sports teams, everything in our lives, we have preconceived opinions about or images. And one of those images, one of the common ones, especially international politics, is the enemy image. We have some people, some countries that we think of as the enemy. Uh, Iran, for instance, it's going to be hard for anything that the Iranians do to be interpreted in the United States as anything other than a malevolent, scheming enemy because we have this image of them. Uh, that it does you know sometimes it matches reality sometimes it doesn't and it's in these it's these images that drive our policy making or drive our decisions towards countries or in, increasingly towards the other party in a, in our country uh, that we think of them as this to a specific image you know, it might be a friend it might be a foe image we have their positive images but more uh, common and more pathological are negative images as I'm sure we're going to get into. But we hold it's the enemy image that we hold of other countries, which drives our perception of everything they do and our reaction and decision regarding what they're doing. It's not always re matching reality. 
which uh, is which is why misperception drives a lot of what we do too. You talk about how uh, you mentioned how um, these negative images, once they're established, they kind of filter and shape incoming information, and that therefore, once you have that initial anchoring, they can be difficult to break. Uh, do you see examples of of times when in U.S. foreign policy when uh, there's opportunities for diplomacy to resolve a kind of conflict, but we kind of can't escape this enemy image. Yeah, everything the Soviet Union did, we interpreted as you know, through the prism of this enemy image. We assumed that there was some nefarious idea behind it. We there's a bunch of pathological implications that come from uh, once you have an established negative image of another country or another person or another party. And it was the same with them, too. Anything we did, they regarded with suspicion. And today we see this most specifically with the Iranians. I think a big reason why a lot of people, why some people are so opposed to the uh, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal being re, uh, renewed and re reinvigorated is because they just fundamentally don't trust the Iranians. They have this image of them as the enemy. And anything the Iranians do, any outreach they make, anything they, they uh, would try to do to, uh, in, to move the diplomacy along is going to be interpreted by us through this prism of the enemy. It's the same thing with them, too. They don't trust us. They see us as the enemy. And as Jervis once wrote, it's really hard for anyone to change their image. Uh, it's Because, as you said, all new information is going to be interpreted through that prism. And everything they do, we're going to assume is something behind it. We, they can't be trusted. Uh, and there's a pattern to it. The same kind of patterns that we interpreted Soviet action during the Cold War, the Iranians have essentially replaced them as the center of a lot of world evil. Now, that might shift as the center of evil shifts northward to Moscow. If we think more, if, if Russia has once again popped up on our radar for obvious reasons as uh, the center of international evil. But it, that kind of thinking is there's a pattern to enemy images, and it it it, it affects the way we're going to make decisions toward them. It affects diplomacy. It affects international uh, relations, and it, it, it's going to affect the uh, the possibility of war down the road too. Uh, if we can't trust the Iranians and anything they do, it's going to be hard to make a deal at the negotiating table. And that's the same kind of uh, same kind of problems we had with the Soviets in the 1970s. They were same the same mentality. A lot of people were saying in the 70s. We can't have arms control with the Soviet Union. You can't fundamentally trust them because we we saw them as the enemy, and that's the same. That's the same way they saw us. That doesn't mean there are no enemies. That everybody you know that that this is wrong. That they're not trying to stick it to us, and they they don't have nefarious uh, purposes sometimes, but most of the time they don't. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of these aspects of this image. But once images are formed, they're hard to break. And if we have formed them domestically, if it's the case that we look that the parties look upon each other as enemies, that's different from looking upon each other as rivals, and it's tough to move forward. You mentioned uh, Putin and, and Russia. Uh, as I understand it, Putin had been pretty explicit about the reasons for uh, the tensions and uh, the perceived fears in Moscow of NATO enlargement and expansion towards towards Russia, um, you know, he acted out in 2008 in Georgia and again in 2014, and then and then again recently in uh, in Ukraine. Um, are there any political psychology factors uh, determining, uh, you know, how how DC in general uh, received those messages uh, to believe or disbelieve? that there's some genuine concern on that side that might be uh, something we can uh, mitigate. 
one of the common misperceptions that accompanies the enemy image is the notion that the other is a realist. Whoever we're dealing with, they're hardcore realists. And it's, it's been the same way with every single enemy we've ever had. Uh, that the uh, that we we know we have a lot of different kinds of motivations for our policy. We want to make the world a better place. We have liberal notions about how the world can improve, but the other side, all they're interested in is, is power and expanding their power and getting stronger. And they are a realist, whether they are the Chinese or the or the or uh, various Arab enemies, the Iranians, they Putin especially, they're realists. And that just and that means has a lot of implications. They're looking to expand their power. They don't have. They're not really worried about uh, about our uh, or attacking them, or they don't have any ideals to think of. It's just power, and they only understand the language of force. You hear this all the time in the various talking heads and various shows that Putin only understands force, uh, and that's always been the case with either every single enemy the United States has has had in the last fifty years only recognizes the language of force, or that's a common misperception that we apply to everybody, whether it's the you know, the Viet Cong, uh, and people in the Arab world, Gaddafi, the Iranians, they, and now Putin only understands force. So if you, and they will interpret our, any conciliation as weakness. This is, this is not true necessarily. So sometimes there are maybe actors like that, but if there's a pattern, that every single actor we are that we see as an enemy only understands the language of force, and that's how it's always put. Uh, then we're, maybe we're misperceiving, and it, by the way, it's the, it goes in the reverse too. Putin sees us as the enemy, as the realist, that we're not really interested in anything except our power. Uh, you know, various people who mistrusted the United States in the Middle East often say, you know, we could talk about uh, liberalism and democracy all we wanted, but really, what the United States was interested in is oil and Israel, and that's all. That's it. Because the other is always a realist, and that, that there is a variety of different implications that come from that, and policy prescriptions that come from that. But and it's always the case that we know we are we have uh, interests that go beyond just our power and our interests. But that other side, uh, no, the Chinese—they're the high church of realpolitik. Putin, the realist, you know, maybe. Or maybe we are misperceiving there. Maybe there's a pattern here that enemies be interpreted largely the same way. So you've mentioned this several times, but let's tease out um, this issue of self-images and overly positive heuristics of ourselves and our own particular tribe. How does that work? Oh, we know we're peaceful. We're peace-loving people. We know we want the world to be a nice place. We want we 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 uh, we want to protect human rights. That other side, though, we can't really be sure about them. We, we they don't say what they mean. Once you have a, somebody, once you've identified the enemy, you know, you, then you can't trust anything they're saying. They hide their true intentions, and we don't really know what they're plotting. One of the things we, we always know, whoever we are, we know more about the negotiations and the conversations on our side than we do on their side. So we don't know what they are up to. And we, one of the things that is calm, it's ubiquitous in human nature, we tend to have a pretty good view of ourselves. And that makes sense, because how else do you get out of bed in the morning unless you think you're a pretty good person? I'm assuming Osama bin Laden didn't get up and think, okay, another day to commit some evil. Great, let's get up. You know, we think we're good. Uh, but the other side, we, we, don't, we can't be sure about them. And we can't be sure what they're plotting. And we, we, another common misperception is and common uh, incorrect belief, generally speaking, is that because we know how complicated it is to make decisions on our side, and we only see the outcomes on their side, 
we assume that they are strategic and plotting and they and they are much more unified than we are and they are they are operating according to plans where we are just kind of struggling and reacting and getting by day to day but not them and we you hear this all the time oh the chinese they think a thousand years ahead uh, okay maybe uh, islamic fundamentalists they have a thousand year plan to bring back the uh, the caliphate uh, you know maybe or maybe they're struggling just like we are, but we just don't see it because we see them as the enemy. And that's part of the misperception and the twisting of reality that happens with, through that prism of uh, at the enemy image. So you've mentioned misperceptions along the lines of, you know, they have political motivations and seek power, whereas we take principled stands. Uh, they are tougher, more strategic, more united than we are. Um, there's also another one you mentioned in this paper, the enemy's fringes speak for its center. Talk about that one. Yeah, we since we know more about the diversity on our side of any kind, either a political debate or, or a country, we know that th we have crackpots on our side. We, uh, there are people out there who say bombastic things that no, most of us don't believe in. Uh, but w when it happens to be when we're looking at the other side, we hear their crackpots and their bombastic morons all the more than we hear their moderates who aren't as loud. They're not as uh, they don't have as high profile. So we tend to think the other side is more represented by their crackpots than by their more rational masses. So it, there's all sorts of crackpots always in the House of Representatives, and we can point out the crazy people and uh, the, on their side. And it makes us feel good to say, oh, look, they're crazy. They're different from us. But it also becomes this, the case that the crackpots on the other side, we take as speaking for the, the, entire, uh, the entire movement or the entire country or the political party. It makes us, as I said, feel good because then we can say, oh, look, there, this, this proves and uh, gives evidence for our beliefs and how twisted they are and how screwed up they are. But we have crackpots too. We think, oh, you know, you can't ignore, you, you can ignore them because they don't speak to the rest of us. So that doesn't help the dialogue. When it doesn't help the perceptions when you think, oh my goodness, we have to deal what their real, uh, their real essence is those weirdos on the fringes. Uh, and and it, whether it's the hardliners in the negotiation over arms control, or as I said, the crackpots that say crazy stuff in the House of Representatives to become you know Twitter stars, uh, they're not speaking for most people. But with those are the people we pay attention to in order to stick it to the other side and point out how crazy they are, and in order to fuel our pre-made predispositions about how they really probably feel, even though they don't even say it. Uh, there's an old saying I think it was uh, Maya Angelou. Who said, uh, when the other side tells you who they are, you should listen or shows you who they are. Well, that just means you take the worst statement that they've ever made in their lives and then say that that's really what it, really what their essence is. Because people tend to be more complicated than that. Uh, but we see the other side in a bit of caricature. And we know our, uh, our uh, complexities and our evolutions and our thinking and, and our, the layers we have. We see them as caricature caricature that and, and uh, that's a which one of the more, uh, one of the many problems in trying to reach out and uh, create some mutual understanding across the chasm of these images another one here you point to is that members of the other side are easily manipulated by their leaders yeah what john has been talking about i have this piece out where i said that this enemy image that we studied a lot in the cold war i see a lot of the same characteristics now popping up in domestic politics and one of the one of the one of the many images, one of the many uh, characteristics of that uh, that I see coming out that 
they, we know our people, uh, our leaders, sometimes we listen to them, sometimes we don't, but we have principles. Their side, whether they're Soviet citizens or people on the other side of the domestic partisan politic, political divide, are easily manipulated. They're essentially sheep, which is one of the reasons why we just, by the way, have to reach out to them and explain the position more, explain our position, explain why they're wrong. But whether it's on the on the left, the people are manipulated by Hollywood and the, the academy and various other liberal icons, uh, and they're and they're run by Soros and these other funders, or on the right, where they're manipulated by talk radio or mega pastors or the Koch brothers or whoever it is. Uh, the the other side are people who haven't really considered their beliefs much, and they're easily manipulated and take away those leadership positions, those manipulators, whether it's Hollywood or or the successors to Rush Limbaugh, whoever they are. Then they wouldn't be as as they wouldn't be as um, as as voracious in their beliefs, and we might be able to make some headway. The other side, we have very, uh, our side has clear principles that we've thought through. The other side is kind of shallow, and they're, they're, they're easily manipulated, whether by the media or by, you know, various other leaders. That's one of the signs that maybe we're misperceiving them. Maybe we're, once you start thinking that way, a lot of these indicators point out, you know, maybe we're being misled by our own images and misperceptions. I've seen a lot of people in the um, policy community um, discuss uh, Russians, as in the Russian people, and make some kind of uh, condemnation of them um, as a, some kind of party to the the regime's crimes in in Ukraine. Um, and some of this, I think, bleeds into policy, like when we talk about sanctions. You know, a lot of this is about. Uh, and ends up punishing the people at large rather than the government or the specific leaders we're talking about. Does that fit in, in this misperception? Absolutely. And I mean, we've had, as, as you're referring to some, probably a few people, but a former ambassador, Michael McFaul, oh, there are no innocent Russians. That's crazy. Uh, most people are somewhat apolitical. They, they have their own problems. They have their own stuff going in their lives, and they, they want to be stay, stay separate from politics. But it's also impossible to know what the Russians really think. Because unless you're an idiot in Russia, when a pollster calls you and says, do you support the war? You're in your back of your mind. You're thinking, do I support the war or do I want to spend 15 years in the gulag? Yeah, yeah, I support the war. It's great. What Putin want me to say next? You don't, we don't know what they think. We don't know what the information they're getting. But it's also the case, too, that in every society, when war breaks out, everybody rallies around the flag. They rally around the government. And that's what we're seeing now to some degree. But we're also seeing people talk a lot. It's interesting. One of the... In classic indicators of the enemy image is that if you think the other side is essentially Nazis, that once they start throwing around Hitler and, and throwing it, it, it's pretty much the case that you can find a lot of references to Nazis in every prior to every intervention the United States has done. There were people in the Bush administration in 2003 who was, were convinced that Saddam Hussein was essentially a Nazi. Well, you can't negotiate with Nazis. Once the other side are Nazis, then it's then the decisions are pretty much made. It's clear what we're going to do. Now, it's it's also the case though that it might be might be true that the R Russians see Nazis differently than we do, which sounds like a screwball thing to say. But I've talked to some Russian folks who say, look, we, you know, uh, we, we we that word is maybe not as loaded with historical fact. As, as it is for us, once we talk about Nazis, then we immediately associate them with the Holocaust and with pure evil. 
And it may just be that to Russians, Nazi is essentially synonymous with enemy, with somebody we don't like. Um, they don't talk a lot about the Holocaust in Russian education, for instance. They don't talk about some of the, uh, the World War II is just a, a, a easy uh, morality play between the good Soviets and the bad Germans. And they talk more about the Germans than they do about Nazis. So maybe it's somewhat different. Otherwise, it makes no sense if it's because if it's otherwise, if it's the case that Putin has convinced himself and his people that the Ukrainians are all Nazis, then I don't know how to get through that wall of misperception. Then we got problems. But if it's the case that Nazis are essentially synonymous in their minds with bad guys rather than perpetrators of inhuman evil, well, then maybe we can talk to them. Uh, as otherwise, I don't know. We got, as I said, there's trouble if they perceive everybody as literal Nazis. But that's an it's, it's easy to find people in this country who essentially think Putin's a Nazi. Everybody is a Nazi. Oh, our, our, our enemies are always Nazis. And once, once you hear yourself saying that or thinking that, then maybe you should ask yourself, whoa, 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 is this true or am I in the grips of this enemy image that we can maybe, it's going to be counterproductive and prevent any meaningful uh, uh, reconciliation, whatever problems we have. Another angle on this enemy image that maybe you can expand upon is um, our actions reflect our situations, theirs reflect their true nature. Talk about that one. Yeah, this, this is what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. It's so widespread that when we do something, we know well, we're forced to do that by our situation, the situation we find ourselves in. The events have, and it might not be what we wanted to do. We had to choose between two evils or, you know, we know that there are a lot of factors chiming in and the, in the situation that made us act like that. When we, we interpret their actions, whether it's the Russians or the other political party, or just somebody we don't like in high school. We think, that, well, that's a fun, that shows who they are. That is a reflection of not the situation they found themselves in, but of their dispositions of what their fundamental nature is. So, and we don't have, an, we don't allow enough room for the, uh, the difficult decisions that other countries or other leaders or parties have to make. Uh, we think it's a reflection of them. So, and we learn, we tend to learn the negative things about them from their decisions. Uh, and this is, this is, we see this all the time in international relations uh, that we, we judge countries by what they do, uh, and, and, but their actions as their dispositions. And ours, though, we know that sometimes we're forced to do things we don't want to do. Uh, the support, supporters of the Iraq invasion in 2003, and there are still a few of them floating around in this country, believe it or not, they'll say, well, we were for essentially forced to do that because of fears of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction or other cockamamie stuff we had. We, weren't, we didn't want to do it. To the Russians, that was a clear sign of our nature, that we were expansionistic, imperial, and whatever we talk about, liberal and spreading democracy, really what we were interested in is, was power. So it's a it's it's a it's a fundamental error, and there's a reason why psychologists call it the fundamental attribution error. It's not right to think that their actions tend to be reflecting reflections of their nature. It's just it's probably a situation for them too. And believe it or not, they're more like us than we recognize. The parties are more like themselves than they recognize. But that's hard to sell. That's a hard sell right now in American politics when we see the other side as the arch enemy. Yeah, it's interesting comparing Ukraine and Iraq, you know, both cases of clear, unequivocal aggression in violation of international law. Um, one is seen by Americans, the Iraq is seen by Americans as 
uh, a strategic mistake at at worst. And um, uh, whereas Putin's invasion of Ukraine is nothing was put upon him, it was uh, his disposition. So there's been a noticeable turn in recent years of kind of hyper partisanship in the United States. And you've argued that many of these psychological insights that IR has borrowed from psychology uh, actually also apply to our domestic political dynamics as well. You know, that the political cleavages in our country today are cultural rather than ideological, and that partisanship has become a social identity and therefore something much more readily fought over. Talk a bit about how these insights might apply domestically. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that's occurred since the Cold War. As the Cold War was ending, uh, one of the Kremlin's big Americanists, Grigory Arbatov, wrote a, a letter to the New York Times. Said, we are about to do something terrible to America. We're about to unleash a, a, a new weapon. He said, we're about to deprive them of the enemy. Uh, and this enemy that we had focused on the previous 40 years was gone suddenly. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we remove the big, the big, scary, powerful international enemy. And it's been replaced as the 90s went on with domestic enemies. There's a lot of psychologists who think we need to have people need to essentially have enemies to be able to function, to get up in the morning. They give life meaning. They give the struggle against evil helps us remember that we are good. And when we didn't have big international evil out there, especially in the 1990s, we had a growth in this country of domestic partisanship. And, and we, uh, we identified evil and we identified rivals at home. And you had the growth of Newt, Newt Gingrich versus uh, Bill Clinton and the, and the, the uh, real dyed-in-the-wool partisanship that we see has gotten worse and with every single administration. And I, it, it, maybe it's no coincidence that this happened when the Soviet Union collapsed, when you didn't have the external unifying force of Soviet evil, we found rivals at home and identified this maybe as a psychological need to have someone to struggle against. I tell my students, you know, I don't know where you went to high school, but I know you had a rival. I know you had a spirit week where you had to wear pajamas every day on Tuesdays or whatever. You know, the, there was somebody you had to meet. You had to go get Roxbury or whatever it was. Uh, and, and maybe it's not that much different when you talk about international political system. And then now, because we didn't have that big enemy, we, we only had a, we only had Al-Qaeda for a couple of years after 9-11, we focus our gaze internally. And we see this, I see the same dynamics uh, that are now, that, that now play out between the, and the same kind of rhetoric and the same kind of passion and misperception between Republicans and Democrats. And we saw with, with uh, Soviets and Americans during the Cold War. I'm one, I, I torture myself by listening to both sides of political dialogue. I, I, I watch Fox. I watch MSNBC. I, everybody tends to irritate me at some point or another. But I hear the same kind of misperceptions, the same kind of rhetoric about what the other side is like. And for as an example, we tend to think the other side is interested in power. We have principles. The other side just wants to control us. Uh, Pro-choice uh, Americans tend to think uh, pro-life Americans just want to control women's bodies. Uh, William Barr and a lot of other people uh, during the Trump administration were convinced that liberals want to control American uh, choices regarding to the pandemic. They, for some reason, want to have people wear masks to control them. They're interested only in power. Uh, maybe, but probably this is the same kind. It's, it's a reflection of the same kind of assumptions and misperceptions we made about the Soviets, that the other side is always a realist. 
And the other side in our political debate, they say they have principles, but really what they want is power. They love to control uh, us and they love to. They, they, you know, so we can just sort of ignore the actual things they're saying and focus on our misperception of what they're saying. My view is that this is dangerous. That is very difficult. If these enemy images become entrenched, as maybe they already are, it's really difficult to overcome them. And it doesn't seem to me that republics can last long when you have internal enemies. If we don't see the other side as a responsible actor that we just disagree with, instead as the enemy that we're fighting with is in some kind of domestic existential struggle, that's real bad for the long-term health of this republic. Can you tease that out a little bit more? I mean, in what ways could this kind of hyper-partisanship um, tear at the seams of our very republic? Democracy can't work if you see it as a zero-sum game. In too many places, if, if you think that when the other side takes over, we're screwed, then you're, not, you're going to be uh, much more tempted to, do, to take extraordinary actions to prevent the other side from taking over. If you just think, well, we're going to lose, uh, you know, we we'll lose some votes for a while, but the fund, we have faith in our system, and they're not going to overstep their bounds too much. Whoever they are taking over, well, then you can just wait till the next election. You can, re you know, but once this notion that the other side is the enemy who is going to screw us comes into to dominate our thinking, then it's going to be very difficult, or very, it'll be a temptation to do as much as we can to subvert the system to prevent the enemy from uh, being able to screw us and to, to keep them down. If, if you don't have a system where both sides can cooperate, if, pol if pol politics used to be you know, the art of the compromise, nowadays, if people compromise, if leaders compromise, they're seen as traitors. If, if, if you, if you vo vote at all with the other side, if you make, if you make a bill that has multiple uh, sponsors from both sides of the aisle, you are a traitor. This is bad for the long-term health of the republic because our system and all democratic systems rely on the faith that both sides have that we're going to follow the rules. And we're not going to try to expend every single parliamentary procedure and every little bit of power to prevent the other side from winning that we can. Any senator can stop any bill. But Senate doesn't work if, the, if everybody tries to stop bills. It, the Senate doesn't work if two senators decide we're not going to uh, we're going to block every single nomination from the from the other administration for their foreign policy uh, teams. Yes, yeah, senators can do that, but the Senate doesn't work if they do. It, this, it, all these institutions rely on some level of uh, of restraint on beside on behalf of both sides. And once if if we think of each other as enemies, that restraint's going to break down. And the, over, the, the health, I mean, it might not happen soon, it might not, but within a couple of elections, we're going to see, you know, it's, it's, it's react, it's it, the reaction uh, or the enemy image helps uh, fuel this notion that if we lose this election, we're going to lose fundamental aspects of this country or, or of our side. So we should do whatever it takes to win it. And people and doing things like restricting voting or, or cheating or, or you know, all sorts of different fraud at the ballot box becomes an acceptable idea if we if the alternative is losing to the enemy. So that's a problem long term, and we can't see the other side of the Soviets because if we do, we got we got we have uh, it's bad for the health of this country. So, in addition to the research on political psychology, you also draw from the literature on conflict resolution and reconciliation. What does that literature tell us about how best to go about resolving not only international disputes with these insights in minds, but uh, domestic ones as well? 
Right. Well, there's 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 little things like on uh, we can t- say from arms control literature from the research on arms control and negotiations, little steps sometimes can lead to bigger ones. So if you can cooperate on little the little easy issues, it can help bridge a little bit of the gap. You can see the other side is trustworthy. You can see that they'll actually live up to what they what they said they would. And you could move forward in little ways by taking baby steps sometimes. But there's other things too. And one of the things that is haunting our uh, our rhetoric and our dialogue today, more than it used to, is this whole notion of whataboutism. And this is a, uh, it's a debate tactic that the Soviets used to use. In fact, a lot of people give them credit for developing it. When something is brought up that, it, that, it, that is bad for your side, you say, well, yes, that's true. But what about the apartheid? If people would say, well, what about the, how can you have people, how can you have people in gulags, uh, Mr. Soviet Premier? You'd say, well, what about what are you, what you're doing in the American South towards uh, black Americans? Yeah, there's problems, but rather than, uh, rather than, confront anything our side is doing. We change the subject quickly and blame them. So there, there are practical steps. There are, uh, there are steps in rhetoric that we can do. And two, this, 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 oh, this a tremendous amount of literature in American politics and sociology and various other disciplines that say the best way to, to overcome either prejudice or stereotypes or enemy images, perhaps, is contact. There's something called the contact hypothesis. If you get to know, if you hang out with people from the other side, you and, and sometimes living near them or just listening to them, you can actually sometimes realize it helps you realize that they're pretty much like you. That this that the the kinds of the chasm that you think separates you from the others, the other whoever that is, is not nearly as wide as you thought. The contact hypothesis, when you're when you're forced to or by choice or are exposed to other people, prejudice tends to break down. I worry that we are that we're kind of becoming further divided in this country because you you can now people are selecting where they live based on their uh, political beliefs a lot of times uh, they're send, selecting where they're sending their kids to school what outlets they're listening to what movies they watch in some senses what sports they pay attention to too we are dividing rather than coming together modern technology makes that easier to ignore the other side. So one of the things you can do if you want to try to uh, help this, help our nation move forward is uh, hang out with, come into contact with the other side sometimes. Maybe invite that crazy uncle to, to Thanksgiving, the one that got banished uh, a while ago because he's going to bring up something about Trump or bring up something about Biden or something. Uh, you know what? Sometimes listening to the other side can be a good thing. We can learn from the research that's out there that contact actually with the other side is one of the ways that we can in the long term, move forward and move past some of these uh, these prejudices and, Im- and images that we have. So we're increasingly isolated into our own political tribes in the country, and that distance actually makes the partisanship and the uh, tensions worse. And in the international context, uh, you know, any aversion to diplomacy, for its own sake even, um, uh, works against this idea that we can overcome disputes uh, peacefully. Um, a, f- a few years ago, you wrote an article for the journal Survival called Restraining Rome, Lessons in Grand Strategy from Emperor Hadrian. And you basically compare the circumstances of the United States today and second century Rome, essentially focused on the point that, as you put it, concentrated power often serves as an impediment to strategic thought Talk a bit about Rome at this time and what insights are there for us today. 
I've been thinking a lot about Rome in the last couple of years because I found it, number one, less depressing than thinking about the United States in a lot of ways. Uh, I've, been, I've just finished a book about the last 2,000 years of grand strategy. Uh, and one of the things that worries me, though, about Rome, and it's, it's fun to try to come up with parallels and you know, figure out how we're different and, and, and similar to Rome. One of the things that happened toward, that is, is a potential path of the future for the United States in Rome is that Augustus came to power. The, the, the Republic ends, as a lot of people know, uh, with, 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 after a big round of civil wars. Octavian comes to power, but he keeps the Senate. He is a dictator. He's an absolute ruler. But he says, I'm not the dictator. I'm the princeps. I'm the first person. I'm essentially first citizen. Uh, and and the, he keeps the trappings of democracy or republic around. And throughout the next 500 years, Rome had a Senate. It was it was totally powerless. They would, you know, it was just sort of a rich man's club that would say things that as long as they didn't get in the, in the emperor's way, they were fine. But there was they still had, but Rome still claimed to be a republic throughout this whole time. Even though a you know Caligula may or may not have made his uh, his horse a senator, which probably didn't happen, but it's a good metaphor for how important the Senate was. It kept the trappings of the Republic, but in reality, it was a dictatorship, and that's what's happened in a lot of. That's how democracies go. That's how it, it, we're not going to have a coup in the United States. It's not going to be a civil war, but it may be the case that like Putin's Russia or or Hungary or Turkey or places where they have the trappings of democracy. But it's not real. Now, uh, in my article that you were talking about was more about foreign policy and their grand strategy. But relating to what we're talking about here, the future for the United States can be a strong person in charge that with the trappings of, of democracy and the trappings of Republican rule, uh, unless we can get our domestic house in order and, our domestic, and, and recognize some of the pathologies that are driving us in that direction. And the, Romans had, the reason the Romans had a big round of civil wars in the first century BC is because Carthage was gone. They had conquered everybody. And then they looked internally and thought, just like after the Cold War, the United States found enemies at home. There were no Roman civil wars until the first century BC, until they had become dominant in the Mediterranean. And then they started fighting each other because they maybe they needed an enemy. And but they realized that they just remembered that they hated people at home when the people they hated abroad had all been brought into the into the empire. So they started fighting each other. And that led to the end of the Republic. Uh, and, and, and how the emperors then put together their grand strategy over the next 500 years is the story for, you know, for the United States. And there's a lot of, there's all sorts of different things that the Romans did. We all, for some reason in my field, in international relations, we like to look at Thucydides and then we skip ahead till like Eisenhower. There's nobody, there's very, very little, uh, other, uh, insights from the ancient world or medieval world that we look at as grand strategy. The Romans did a lot of things wrong, as you probably know, they fell. But they did a lot of things right, too. And they had a lot of really good years. Uh, so how they put that together has been what I've been focused on. It was easier, as I said, to focus on what the emperors did wrong than what we did wrong in the United States. It was a sort of sad for the conscience for a few years, I think. Part of this dynamic of uh, needing foreign enemies to properly function at home, and then when you lose them, you focus on your internal enemies. Part of that is because... I think Rome at the time and the United States have a kind of baseline expectation that uh, you know the world is theirs and they are the first they are the first actors in international affairs and they're the ones that have to go and squelch enemies where they do arise. And so one of the things you do recommend in that paper, 
is basically altering or restraining uh, our foreign policy, retrenching this expansive grand strategy because uh, it can perhaps resolve these tensions. I'll, if you'll excuse me, uh, do one more long quote. Uh, I started the episode with this and I'll end it, but uh, you can expand on this if you like. You write, by keeping its threats in proper perspective, the United States could recognize that its security does not demand robust international military action. By restraining itself, the United States could demonstrate to the world that force should be a last resort, even for the strongest, most capable state in history, and thus do more to promote peace than all its misguided attempts at global policing. Um, talk a little bit about this and how it might resolve some of the international level and domestic level tensions that we've talked about. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that one of the patterns that become sort of clear when you look at a Roman history is that the, the status quo emperors tended to have better reigns than those who went a conquering, who, went, who were trying to revise the status quo. Most of the time in Roman history, they followed Augustus's advice. Augustus supposedly said on his deathbed, don't expand the empire anymore. Keep it restrained within the modern uh, limits. Uh, and those emperors that followed that advice, and we could say a lot of emperors talked about that. It was kind of their Monroe Doctrine, that uh, the emperors talked about don't expand the empire anymore. For the most part, they didn't. Um, and those, empire, those emperors that decided to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, to, uh, to uh, expand new lands, often ran into problems. Uh, the, my favorite little example. Uh, one of the more popular, well-known Roman emperors was this guy Trajan, who had big, uh, in the middle, in the beginning of, or sorry, I'm sorry, the end of the first century AD, conquered Dacia and added it a new, big part, which is sort of modern uh, Romania, added big, added big parts of the Persian Empire, the Parthians into the Roman Empire. And uh, they made a big column, as you might have heard of Trajan's column in Rome, and these were gigantic military adventures. And he was popular. Because conquest is popular, the next two emperors, though, especially his his successor Hadrian, maybe on his first day in office or in, in power, but it's certainly soon after taken over, reversed all those or the majority of those conquests, pulled everybody back, and he as a result it was unpopular at first. He killed some of the people who objected to him. I think sort of the the Roman version of neocons objected to this, and Hadrian had him killed, which you can do as an emperor. It must, and it's nice to be the emperor. Uh, but he pulled back and then and built walls and the very famous one in England, but a various variety of other ones around the empire, sort of saying that this is the, the, the manifestation of Augustus's policy. This is where the empire stops. This is where we are. And, and the, the, another little thing, his successor, as a guy named Antoninus Pius, probably hardly anyone has heard of him. Uh, he was tw 23 years. He was at the height of the Roman Empire. They're ruled by an emperor that we know very, very little about. And we know little about him because he didn't do much of anything abroad. He didn't have any glorious conquest. He just ruled over the per a period of uh, there was a there was plague during that time too. But generally speaking, prosperity and security. But that prosperity and security tends to that's not something historians like to write about as much. In times of peace, history tends to be a bit silent. So the reigns of Hadrian and Antoninus Pius were they're listed there's a reason why they're listed among the, the five good emperors that's sometimes said in roman history uh they did that's antoninus pius may have may have never seen a legion during his time in office he didn't come apparently within 500 miles of of any battle that was happening 
he uh, he he reigned over a very restrained, uh, peaceful, happy time. And uh, granted, there was a few years of plague in there, and that, but that wasn't necessarily the result of restraint. And it, that pattern throughout Roman history, we can see that those emperors that t that focus on Augustus's advice. Rather than the other big, uh, had, uh, on the one hand, Augustus says don't expand, but some emperors were inspired by Alexander the Great, uh, and Trajan in particular. I want to go, I want he saw himself as the new Alexander. Uh, and Hadrian, we know, we talked about, about that uh, Roman version of the Monroe Doctrine, said, no, no, stop expanding. This is where we're going to stop. Rome did better, the people did better, suffered less, and certainly their neighbors suffered less when people listen, when emperors listened to Augustus rather than Alexander. Chris Fetweiss, thank you very much for talking with us. You're very welcome. Anytime. <laughs>